0: Great, Thank you very much. Uh, good morning. Is it morning? I don't know. I've forgot my watch this morning, and I feel kind of all out of sorts. Okay, thank you, Caroline. I trust you'll also tell me when I've gone on too long. Uh, <laughs> uh, just before I get into this, just to give you some feedback, it's very much linked to what I'm speaking about today. but um, last week we held a special offering for our family, our church family in Kathmandu towards their building project to try and get them over the line in terms of getting this building completed and moved in and all the rest. Uh, we said uh, 60, we're, gonna, we're aiming for £16,000, which was roughly, obviously you've got exchange rates and stuff, it's kind of a rough amount that we needed, and uh, th- I'm pleased to say we've basically done it. So... Um... Uh, the last count yesterday was £15,780, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. And uh, you can, of course, still give to it today if you want, um, but we're not going to be continuing with that offering. It was a one off special offering. And um, I've had messages this morning from Jen and Amos. Uh, they're both so grateful, thankful, and uh, yeah, thank you for your generous giving to help uh, our brothers and sisters who have a lot less than we do. And uh, we trust this is going to be a major, major milestone in the history and the ongoing story of that church that will see the kingdom advance in Nepal. So thank you very much for your generosity. Uh, it's amazing. So last week I spoke about unity and uh, it was part of Vision Sunday. I spoke about the importance of unity and pursuing unity if we're going to keep moving towards that vision that God has for us because probably more important than where God is leading us, that's important, it's good to know, it's good to have a picture of that. But probably more important than where God is leading us is who we are on the journey. What kind of people we are as the people of God. What are our values? Are we growing? Are we growing in maturity, in love for Jesus? Are we becoming more and more like Jesus? And uh, one key value for us, a core value for us as the people of God, is generosity, generosity in every area of life. So this is the start of a seven-week series called Gospel-Driven Generosity. Um, now, it's not seven weeks all about money. Um, you might be relieved to know. But of course, clearly how we handle money is a really important part of generosity and it will feature later on in the series. But generosity is, is far more radical, far, far more radical than that. And that's what we're going to be looking at is is a radical generosity. That's what we're going to be speaking about through this series. Radical generosity that runs so deep within us that it permeates every part of who we are, every area of life, everything that we do. Because you can appear to be generous financially, but still be pretty fundamentally ungenerous, actually. Not to be radically generous, because radical means root, It's at your root, at your very core, radical generosity. You can give a lot of money away and still not be radically generous and even actually be ungenerous. So today we're going to look at a couple of things as we kick off this series. uh, And then we'll be resuming the series actually in a couple of weeks because next week we've got baptisms and dedications. Another brilliant morning. uh, And then we'll be resuming the series after that. So I'm kicking it off today to look at a couple of things. First is what is radical generosity? What does that look like? And then secondly, how do we become radically generous? How do we get hold of that? So the aim today is really to lay a bit of a foundation for us to stand on for the rest of the series as we look in more depth in future weeks at specific areas of generosity. And we're going to look at a passage in Luke, Luke chapter 18. And it might not be immediately obvious how this links to generosity, but hopefully it will become clear as I go on. So Luke 18 and from verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So... In verse 10, Jesus straight away introduces these two characters, and they're very, very deliberately chosen by Jesus. He introduces a tax collector and a Pharisee. Straight away, when the crowds heard that, they would have certain preconceptions in their minds, certain assumptions about these two men would have come into their minds. So, tax collectors were hated, like really hated. It's probably never been the most popular uh, profession, I'm guessing in any point in history, but here, they are truly hated because they were seen as uh, collaborators with the Roman oppressors. You know, they're seen like that. They, 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 they're greedy. They cheat people. They skim money off the top, keep it for themselves. They are seen by society as the scum of the earth, right? Parasites. They're truly low. So straight away, people here, tax collector, and they're thinking of a certain kind of person. Contrasted with that, a Pharisee, we might have our own views about Pharisees because of what we've read in the Bible, but In their society at the time, a Pharisee would have been someone to be greatly admired. These were devout people. They studied Scripture. They they obeyed Scripture scrupulously. They were holy men. They gave away 10% of everything, so they were seen as really generous. So a Pharisee was a moral guide. This was a pillar of the community, someone to be admired, someone to be respected. So straight away, Jesus deliberately chooses these two people because he's setting them up. He's, he's going he's gonna to trick them, he's going he's to shock them with what he says, because they're expecting the tax collector to be the villain and the Pharisee to be the hero of the story, and Jesus flips it on its head. And what he's really saying through that is, look, you, you've got to look beyond outward appearances, you've got to look beyond titles. It's what's inside a man that is important, it's what's in the heart is really important. And in this parable, what we see is two very different kinds of heart on display, And the contrast is pretty stark. Um, You've got this Pharisee, and he's standing there in full view. He wants to be seen by other people. He wants to be heard by other people. He's looking up. He's praying very eloquently, and he says, God, I thank you. And you think that's a really good way to start a prayer. We should start our prayers with, God, I thank you. And what you expect, then, is a list of things that God has given him. But that isn't what follows. What you get is a list of his accomplishments, I thank you that I'm not like other men who are beneath me and like this tax collector here. I thank you I'm not like them. I thank you that, that I am better. I, 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 I fast and I tithe. And so he's got this guy standing there and outwardly he's praying to God. He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself, about himself. It's a self-congratulatory prayer. Jesus even says it, that he prayed about he, he prayed about himself. And uh, so you got this guy doing that and basically saying, thank you that I am so wonderful and so good. And he's adoring and praising himself and in the process looking down on everybody else. Here's where the theme of generosity comes in. This man, this Pharisee, technically is pretty generous because he gives away 10% of everything. That's a lot. Everything. I mean, most people in the world do not give away 10% of everything they have. So technically, he is pretty generous, but he's not radically generous. He's not generous in his heart. It's a bit like when you get somebody who gives a lot away, but they like to make a bit of a show of it. They, 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 they do it in such a way that needs praise. It, it requires recognition, recognise that I'm giving a lot of money away. Or it seeks to control those who they give it to. Like, look at what I've done for you, now you do this for me because actually you owe me. It holds it over people. This Pharisee is coming to God and he's presenting to God his fasting and his tithing, almost like this badge of achievement or moral character, a badge of generosity. Look, look how good I am, God it should cause you to give me favor. Basically, he's saying, you owe me, God, you owe me. But true generosity is not like that. True generosity doesn't seek thanks or appreciation or recognition or favor. So this man, this Pharisee, he gives a lot away, sure. He gives a lot of money and other things away, but he's not generous in heart or in character. And generosity has more than one currency. It's not just about money. And I'll come back to the prayer of the tax collector in a few minutes. But we see an aspect of a different type of generosity in the verses that immediately follow this parable. So in verses 15 to 17, it says, People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, No, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth... Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. Now, the point that Jesus is making here is not about generosity. The point is we're to come to God and trust him with, the, with the, the trust and the humility and the faith of a child. It's that simple faith. But what else is going on here? What else do we see going on here? We're in the minds of Jesus' disciples. Children are not important. Babies, toddlers are simply not important. This is going to be a waste of your time, Jesus. You've got got more important things to do. You've got to invest your time in important things, not in children. You get nothing out of that. But Jesus has the completely opposite attitude. He invites the children to come because they are important and they are worthy of his time. And when you contrast that with the attitude of the disciples, what you see in Jesus is just this beautiful extravagance. It's kindness. It's extravagance. He doesn't have to give his time. For these children, he is in demand. You know, Jesus has always got people wanting a piece of him. So they come and come and pray for my daughter over here. Come and heal the sick over there. Come and teach here. He's got lots of demands. He doesn't have to give his time. There's an extravagance about Jesus in how he slows down for people and gives them his attention and gives them his time. An extravagance, generosity in how he uses his time. So, as I said, there's more than one currency of generosity. And we're going to be looking at some of them through the series. But the point is, if you're generous in your heart, if you are radically generous, then you won't only be generous with money. You will be generous with money, but not only with money. You'll be generous in all currencies of generosity. So let me give a few examples of, what that, of, of these different currencies. So you might be really happy to give money to a good cause, to support those who are less well-off than you but you don't want to be personally involved with them. You don't want to actually have to get up close and get to know these people and encounter people in very challenging life circumstances, very different lives to you, because it doesn't feel comfortable. And, you know, seeing their circumstances, and it means you kind of got to give out emotionally. You've got to get emotionally engaged and involved with people, and that is not you. That is not what you want to do, so you want to keep a distance. So every... every um, Time we have a gift day, we give really, really generously as a church, we give into our hope fund, which supports ministries like King's Table and Cap and Azalea Cap as Christians Against Poverty. And that is great. Please keep doing that. Please don't back off giving generously to those things. But the little challenge in it really is, well are we also willing to get our hands dirty and give time and get emotionally involved with people? The point being that the amount you give is not the only measure of generosity it's one measure certainly but it's not the only measure of generosity even if you do give very generously another currency would be hospitality hospitality your your home your how you use your home you you'll give generously financially but you don't really want anyone spilling coffee on your rug and invading your space because that's your private space that's your sanctuary time is another currency like we saw with Jesus and the children. We can become very, very protective of our time. Sometimes rightly so. We need rest and we rest in different ways. So we are to steward our time wisely just as we are to steward money wisely. But that can very easily become an excuse for lacking generosity. Oh, I'm stewarding my time wisely. It can so easily flip over into this. It's just an excuse to lack generosity. It's my time. You know, and I resent anybody trespassing on that territory. Why? Because that's the thing that I really value. That's the thing that I want to hold on to and protect. And um, I was challenged on this a bit relatively easy. It was a few months ago, uh, walking through the Eden Centre out there. And um, there was a lady there doing a survey. You know, they stand in the middle and you can see they're trying to get your attention. And my natural response is to kind of go as wide as I can... <laughs> and sort of keep looking ahead, or you take your phone out, and you're like, you know. Um, and I was, I was about to do that with this particular lady, and I just suddenly thought, no, no, stop. Just stop, because actually it's a miserable job, because nobody wants to talk to her. So I thought, I'm going to stop, and I will talk to her, and um, answered her questions. Got into conversation with her, turns out her name was Heather. She was in her 80s, which I was, you wouldn't have known that she was in her 80s. Uh, she was doing this job to remain active to be out there speaking to people she lived in Hemel Hempstead uh, so she was only coming to Wickham for a day trip Um, and in the course of conversation got a bit deeper she said I said I bet you can't guess what I do she said are you a police officer I was like why would you (laughs) I said no no I'm not a police I I lead I lead a church and just around the corner, and we got into conversation. It turns out she had a history of church and a history of faith, but it really had been many, many years. And the reason was she had been really hurt by church. The things had gone on. She had been really, really hurt by it, and she just hadn't gone back. And um, so I said, look, well, you know, I described what our church is like. I said, why don't you Google churches like that in Hemel Hempstead? I can't guarantee it will be a good church, but why don't you try? Why don't you just try? And then I prayed with her, I got the opportunity to pray with her in the street, that she would grow closer to Jesus, that, that she would find a good church and have people around her. And I, I stopped and I thought, I'm so glad I gave my time, because that was a real kingdom encounter. I'm so glad I stopped. Now, lest you think I am something that I'm not very holy and courageous, It's like I, 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 I very rarely do that. And I don't think I've done that since. And I don't know why, because actually it was a great encounter. Um... But I was glad I gave my time. The question with this generosity thing is, what is really valuable to you? What, what is the thing that you hold on to? If, and if you do, whether it's your time or your home or your money, whatever it might be, if you hold on to that and protect what is really valuable to you, actually you can't be radically generous because, gener- because generosity has to involve sacrifice just by its nature. It has to involve sacrifice. Otherwise, it's not really generous. It's easy. You know, if I have a thousand pounds in my pocket and I give somebody a pound, that's not much sacrifice, it's not, it's not actually very generous, if you see what I mean. It involves giving away those things that are precious, it involves an open-handedness with those things. Maybe you think you're very generous in all sorts of different ways, you know, not just with money, but with your time and with your home and all these kind of things, maybe you think you're very generous in all sorts of ways, but you hold people to account. People owe you because you've done lots for them, or maybe people owe you because they've hurt you. But radical generosity doesn't do that. It doesn't hold things over people. It doesn't hold people to account. It doesn't only help those who are able to help you in return. It doesn't hold grudges. And what I'm really trying to say here is if you think you're generous, you're probably not. So be blessed (laughs) with that. I I think we see what we're really like, what's going on a bit deeper under the surface when we're under stress. And so when I'm under stress, my family will tell you uh, that I am all sunshine and smiles. No, they all tell you that I get snappy and irritable and moody and self-absorbed. i do not. <laughs> hey, give me, throw me something here. It's like, um, you know, in those moments, I kind of retreat into my cave. Suzanne might, my, my wife might want to talk about something really important that's going on in her life, and I don't want to. I really don't. And, you know, what I'm really effectively saying is actually my needs are more important than yours, and that's not generous. When we're under stress, things emerge from our heart which are not always great. How do you respond under stress? How do you respond when somebody hurts you, when somebody offends you? Because that will show what's kind of going on under the surface, what's kind of lurking in your heart, because generosity is a heart issue, ultimately. Now, contrast that with Jesus... What did Jesus do when he was under the most stress? When he had been tried unjustly and he had been beaten and flogged and whipped till he was nearly dead. And he had to carry this crossbeam to a place of execution. And he's being mocked by everybody around. What did Jesus do? He says, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. And when he's had nails driven through his hands, driven through his feet, and he's hanging on the cross in absolute, unspeakable agony, what does Jesus do? Jesus takes time to reassure one of the criminals being crucified next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. He, he sees his mother at the foot of the cross and he says to his disciple, John, this is your mother now and this is your son. You look after one another. And it's just staggering. At his most desperate moment, When Jesus is cut the most deeply, what flows out of him, what flows out of his core is just love and compassion and it's utter generosity. That is radical generosity. It's like he can't be anything other than generous because that is what he's made of. That's radical generosity. Now just think how different the world would be if we were all like that. But clearly we're not. And we can't make ourselves like that either. This is so heavily linked to last week talking about humility We can't make ourselves humble in the same way. We can't make ourselves radically generous. We can put on a veneer of generosity. We can be generous in lots of different ways, and we should. Again, I'm not saying don't do that. We should try to be generous. We should look for opportunities to be generous. But radical generosity is what permeates every area of life. You know, What is truly in your heart will always show itself in different circumstances. Radical generosity is about a life of self-giving, It it comes out of a generosity of heart. It comes out of an overflow, a fullness in your heart that overflows with generosity in all circumstances. So how full are our hearts? I think as human beings, we are very aware from a very young age that actually there's an emptiness that lies in our heart. There's an emptiness within that we're always trying to fill. There's a gap. There's a, a, a missing sense of fulfillment, a missing sense of happiness that we're always trying to find reaching and grasping for different things and and not really seeming to be able to attain it. We're trying to find fulfillment and happiness, trying to fill emptiness. And here's the thing, if we operate out of that sense of emptiness, well, we can go around helping lots of people and being really nice and being generous with what we have. We can do that, but the question is, why are we doing it? What is the motive for doing it? And I would suggest, if we're operating out of a sense of emptiness, we're using other people. As we're being generous to them. Maybe because you have a need to be needed. You know, you have a need to have people tell you how much you mean to them. You know, oh, I don't know what I would do without you. Well, whose need is your, are you really fulfilling? It's yours. It's self-centered. The motives might be might be good, but it's just it's ultimately it's self-centered. Or it might be, it might be just to feel good about yourself. Feel proud, like the Pharisee. Look at what a good person I am. Look how generous I am, but you're not if that's the motive. That's not generosity. So how do we become radically generous? (laughs) Because I've just painted a bit of a bleak picture of that, haven't I? How do we become radically generous? Well, this is where we come back to the tax collector's prayer. So with the Pharisee, we have somebody there who technically is really generous. Outwardly, he's generous, but actually he's fundamentally ungenerous underneath in his heart. But in the tax collector, we have someone who technically is greedy, cheats people, But as we'll see, there's something going on in him that will make him generous, that will make his heart generous. Because in stark contrast with the Pharisee, this tax collector, he stands at a distance. He doesn't want people to see him. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's ashamed. He he feels unworthy. His eyes are downcast. He feels a deep sense of shame about his sin, about how he's living his life. He's beating his chest. There's a sense of despair and desperation in him. There is no hint of self-congratulation like we see in the Pharisees' prayer. There's no sense that God should be obligated to him in some way. He comes empty-handed, the tax collector, comes empty-handed before God, and he prays this very simple prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's asking for God's generosity towards him. That's what he's really asking for. He's saying, I don't deserve anything from you. You don't owe me anything. I am a sinful man. I know that. But please have mercy. Please have mercy on me. He's asking God to be generous towards him, to give him something he doesn't deserve. He's asking for his mercy. He's asking for his grace. He sees the emptiness that lies within. He knows he's been trying to fill that emptiness in all the wrong ways, and he knows only God can actually fill that emptiness if he's willing And as I alluded to before, the really shocking thing for those who are listening to this parable is where Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes home justified before God. (laughs) He is made right before God. He is approved of by God. He's accepted by God and not the Pharisee. He goes home not right with God. And you can almost hear the muttering start in the crowd of like, what did he say? Did he say the tax collector? He's got that wrong, surely. And there are people nervously glancing at the Pharisees who are in the crowd, seeing how are they they taking this? How are they reacting to this? Because in their minds, the bad person has been approved and the good person has not. Bad person approved, good person not. But this is a pattern you see throughout the Gospels. So, for example, there's the story where the sinful woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And then the Pharisee is there and... uh, he is not happy with this. He's outraged at this. But what happens? Jesus commends the woman, and he criticizes the Pharisee. Or the, the well-known story of the prodigal son, which is really a story of two sons, where you have the good older son. He does the right thing. He sticks around. He works hard. He you know, works really, really hard. And then you've got the bad younger son who... Uh, runs away he insults his father he wastes his inheritance he can makes an absolute mess of his life what happens at the end of the story the younger son is in the feast the older son is out in the darkness you just got all these different episodes in the gospels where you have a seemingly good person contrasted with a seemingly bad person and every time it's the bad person who gets saved and the good person is lost and why is that why is that well of course because what you have in those instances is never that there's a good person and a bad person, what you have is two people who are very lost. Two lost people trying to be their own saviour, trying to find the fulfilment, trying to be their own God, but in very different ways. You have two empty-hearted people who are trying to fill that emptiness and find that fulfilment that they're missing in different ways. There's really two ways that we try to be our own saviours, to try to be our own God. There is the tax collector's way or the younger brother's way in the story of the prodigal son. There's that way where you do your own thing, you trample on others, you, you destroy others to get what you want, and you try to fill that gap with money and, and things and experiences in life and all that kind of stuff. So many people live their lives like that, always going after the next thing, always going after the next thing to try and find that happiness so that you know they're missing. That's one way of trying to be your own saviour, and it's a, maybe kind of a very obvious way. But then there is the Pharisee's way or the older son's way of trying to be your own saviour, which is by being very good. It's by being a good person, following the rules, doing things for people, being very moral, giving away money so that you are then in a position to be proud and say, you owe me, God. I'm an asset to you. You need me. And the Pharisee or the older brother simply cannot comprehend the idea that he is just as empty and he is just as in need of a saviour as the tax collector or the younger brother and if that's you if you're a religious pharisee type you know someone who actually maybe deep down you are trying to be your own saviour through being outwardly very good and outwardly very moral you might pray to god but is he really your saviour because do you even need a saviour you are your saviour you think, you're, you think you're good enough? Then you're, you are your saviour. Because you're a good person. Not like criminals. Not like people who do bad stuff. Not like those people who are beneath me. And that is really the mark of being a Pharisee. That you consider others to be beneath you. That you look down on people. It's self-righteous. It is, it is superiority. It's pride. Let us examine ourselves. I know I can have that attitude. Time and again... The bad get saved, the good are lost. Matthew 21, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, look, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, he's not saying it's good to to, to live your life in this way, or it's good to be a tax collector, or it's good to be a prostitute, and he's not saying that there is no hope for the Pharisees either. He's not saying they're getting rewarded for for being bad, and you're getting punished for being good. What he's really saying, no, they're they're both trying to be their own saviour. But the difference is the good person doesn't know it. The bad person is very aware <laughs> that they're trying to do that. The good person doesn't know it. It's a bit like if you're sick with what is a curable disease, but you refuse to acknowledge it, and you end up dying. Is it really the sickness that killed you? No, it's really it's more the denial that you're sick in the first place. It's the denial that there is a problem. The Bible's very clear. We all have a big, big problem. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. That's pretty... All. In, that's everybody. Every human being has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin, what we earn because of that sin, is death. We've got a big problem. Humankind, we have a massive problem. We all need a saviour. We can't save ourselves... We all need a saviour, but many don't think that they do. Why? Because I'm a good person. How dare you suggest that I'm not? I'm a good person, certainly better than that person. I am my own saviour. Thank you very much. The religious Pharisee type thinks good people are in and bad people are out. And I'm not one of the bad people. So I'm okay. But equally, the secular, liberal, progressive of today thinks... Open-minded people are in, and bigoted people are out, and I'm not one of the bigoted people, so I'm okay. Or it might be oppressed people in, oppressors out, and I'm not one of the oppressors. But you are still a Pharisee, because you're still looking down on people. You're still effectively saying, like the Pharisee, thank you that I am not like them. You're putting yourself in a group, and you're putting others in a group, and you're saying, thank you that I'm not like those people. I'm better than them. And what is so strikingly obvious in our day and it's, I, I, it, it is how so many people who outwardly espouse values of tolerance are so utterly intolerant to the point of absolute hatred of anybody who expresses a different point of view. It's outside. What is on the outside doesn't match what's actually going on on the inside. That's like the Pharisee. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not good people in and bad people out. And the gospel is not open-minded people in and bigots out or oppressed people in and oppressors out. No, the gospel is the humble are in and the proud are out. The humble are in, the proud are out. Jesus says in verse 14 that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Or Brendan Manning, the author, puts it like this. He says, Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need, who know they don't have it all together. And who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. The humble are in. The proud are out. And humility isn't a virtue that you can use to earn salvation either. It's simply what you become when faced with the presence of God. When you are faced with the holiness of God and it exposes everything that is wrong in you. And I've shared this many times before, but that is how I encountered God when I was 17. For the first time, just encountering him in his holiness and outwardly decent person, inwardly mired with sin. And I saw it in that moment. I just saw the the darkness of my heart and at the same time experienced the most amazing love of God. And that's been my experience on several occasions since as well. See, when you come into the presence of God, that's what happens. You see yourself as you really are, and it's quite sobering. If the Pharisee in this parable was really praying to God, if he was really in God's presence, he would not be able to pray a prayer like this. He just simply wouldn't be able to pray that kind of a prayer. It's a bit like Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. He was seen as the most righteous man of his generation. You know, He was recognized as being righteous, And yet when he came into the presence of God, he saw this vision of God in the temple, filling the temple, and he encountered the holiness of God, he's just totally undone. And all he can say is, woe to me. Woe to me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's aware. It's a bit like Peter, Jesus' disciple, when Jesus does that miracle where he says, look, cast your nets on the other side. And they've been fishing all night and Jesus comes along and he says, cast your nets on the other side. And they bring in this enormous haul of fish, this incredible miracle. And it's like in that moment, Peter, he knows he's in the presence of the divine. Something clicks in him. He knows and he, he says to Jesus, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. It's like he, he, he encounters the holy and he suddenly becomes aware of himself. And he can't be in the presence of Jesus because holiness and sin don't mix Get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. This tax collector comes before God and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's not just asking for sympathy here. He's not just asking, you know, let me off, please. Go easy on me, God. No, the Greek word translated mercy here has meaning of atonement. It's talking about atonement appeasing the righteous and just wrath of God. The tax collector knows what he's like. He knows that he deserves to be cut off from God, as we all do. And he's saying to God, please have mercy on me. Please atone, atone for my sin. Make it right between me and you. And that Greek word is only used one other place in the New Testament, in Hebrews 2.17, where it's talking about Jesus making atonement for the sins of the people. And here's the thing when we realise and appreciate what that really means, making atone, God making atonement for our sin, when we really understand what that means, that God is so holy, he's so other, he's so beyond us, beyond our comprehension, he's so holy, he hates evil, he hates our sin, we deserve to be cut off from him because of our sin, because we're mired and steeped in sin from birth, but he came. As a man, he took on flesh. He gave up everything, right through to being tortured and killed on a cross. I mean, if you just consider the absolute absurdity of this, God himself taking on flesh, making himself killable. God, I think Addie said it earlier, but when the author of life is killed, how does that work? God makes himself beatable, torturable, It's mind-blowing, but is what he did. He came and he shed his blood to atone for our sin forever, to make it right for eternity. Now, when we realize what that really means, what is involved, that when we ask for mercy from God, when we ask for atonement from God, we are really asking for his extravagant generosity, the extravagant grace of God giving us what we do not deserve, because generosity by its very nature costs Generosity hurts. It is sacrificial. And there was nobody that ever lived that paid a greater price or made a sacrifice like Jesus did. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. There was no greater sacrifice that has ever, ever been made. And that is the truth that we need to be filling ourselves with all the time. Reminding ourselves of as much as we can. Reflecting on it. Absorbing it all the time. Like I said last week fixing our eyes on Jesus, and the wonder, the sheer wonder of the cross, because that is where pride and self centeredness go. You cannot be proud in his presence, and humility and generosity grow. And if we want to be radically generous people, and I trust we do, it has to be out of the overflow of a heart that is filled with the radical generosity of God. We can't fill it ourselves. We cannot make ourselves generous. Now, if you don't know Jesus, if you're here this morning and you... You, don't have, you know you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You know, you, you know that your sins are not forgiven. Come to him today. Come to him today. That would be my encouragement to you. There might not be another day. Don't waste the opportunity. Come to him today like the tax collector. You come in humility. Acknowledge your need of him. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your need of a saviour. That you, you have sinned also and fall short of the glory of God. And there is nothing you can do to make up for it. Acknowledge that, that you need him that you need this saviour. You know, Jesus comes and he offers this extraordinary gift of salvation, but any gift has to be received. You have to receive it. You have to come and receive the gift of salvation. Come, acknowledge your need of him, and ask God for his radical, costly generosity for yourself. Because he did it for you, are you going to receive it from him? And then for those of us who do know Jesus, those who follow Jesus, who've we, our lives have been changed. Our lives have been transformed by Jesus. Let me encourage you continue to rely on that which brought you in in the first place the radical, costly generosity of God. Don't let your heart grow cold. Don't let your eyes be averted to look at yourself. Don't think you can do it all in your own strength. No, 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 continue to rely on the radical generosity of Jesus and let it fill your heart until you overflow with it so that when you give, when you, when you do generous things for other people, when you help people, it's not doing it like a Pharisee. It's not proud, it's not superficial, it's not looking for recognition and repayment, but it's as someone who realizes that you live in the good of the unearned, undeserved, extravagant blessing and generosity of God. He gave himself for you. It's as someone who lives to give, just as Jesus gave himself. And it's as someone who is radically generous, just as Jesus is radically generous. So Adam, if you want to come up with the band, let me just encourage us. If, as we continue with this series in future weeks, looking at these different aspects of generosity, keep standing on this foundation Keep reminding yourself and asking for and receiving and being filled with the radical, costly generosity and grace of God because that is what will change our hearts. That is what will change you more and more into the likeness of Jesus and that is where you will become radically generous.